Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, and we are exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim, and every week we bring you trending topics from the wine world and interesting things that we have run into and have experienced in our daily lives in the wine business. We also like to talk about all the interesting things that we Google about wine over the week. So, uh, Mark, what did you Google this past week? Well, Kim, this may surprise you and the listeners, but Uh-oh. I researched some wine. <gasps> Research some wine. Yeah, and I researched it because we got feedback on social media. Someone was asking, and you probably get this a lot in classes, someone inherited someone's wine collection, what they thought was a collection of value, Mm -hmm. and sent me a few labels that I'd never heard of the brands. And I think this person's relative collected like really interesting looking bottles, but not age-worthy wine. Uh So I I researched the brand or the, the winery to make sure it wasn't something of value. But the first one was a Pinot Grigio from Sicily that was a 2002 vintage. It was a nice bottle, but obviously way past and had no value whatsoever. So I did a lot of research. It was interesting to see the products that I've never heard of, but with bottles that were very unique, Mm -hmm. but they actually were all very past the date. And I just referred them to a vintage chart to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I get that question a couple times a year where people are like, hey, I have a collection or I have all these old wines and maybe I want to sell them or I want to know should I drink them or whatnot and every once in a while it's a like serious you know inquiry into hey is this something that was held for investment purposes and is there some way that we can sell this and make some cash and that's hard like that is not the easiest thing to do and and I certainly am not qualified to make those sorts of judgment calls there are people out there that do do that for a living but it's uh yeah it's kind of harder to put a a price on it. You know, wine kind of is, at least for us here in Massachusetts, it's one of those things where, you know, you buy it, you drink it. And if you're buying it for investment reasons, um, there's a lot of kind of rules attached to that. So I think this person just bought it for the bottles. Because they look pretty. Yeah. And I would have kept it for just the the unique bottles. Well, like I have a couple of special bottles that like someone gave me a bottle of wine from the year that I was born. I'm never going to open that up and drink it. Now it's way too old, but just as sort of a talking piece, it's like, hey, I have this (laughs) bottle is Zinfandel from 1970 whatever keep it keep it that's right keep it and keep it and talk about it what about you Kim what did you research this week so I've been doing a lot of wine tasting lately and one of the wines that showed up today was from Australia and then it occurred to us that we really have not been seeing a lot of Australian wines recently and I got into a conversation with a colleague about why that is and I went and I did some research into sort of the ups and downs of the Australian wine industry and fascinating about how in 1960s and 1970s there was pretty much no industry for wine in Australia at all. It didn't really start until the 1980s and early 1990s and then when the government decided that there was all of this opportunity for wine because there were some smaller wine producers in kind of the better regions like the Barossa Valley and the McLaren Vale that were producing some really excellent wine. There was this push for lots of planting 
flooding in some of the areas that had a little bit more water and a little more of a um, environment that was better for producing a bigger crop of grapes. And then they ended up with all of this extra wine. And that was how sort of the inexpensive yellowtails of the world were kind of born. So then there was this real shift in the what we see imported into the US from Australia from sort of these fine, big, powerful Cabernet and Shiraz reds to this more bulk commodity kind of wine. And now really, that is all that we see coming out of Australia, we don't see a whole lot of fine wine at all. So it's it's really been this sort of back and forth between what is Australia known for? Are they known for sort of bulk bin wines? Or are they known for fine Shirazes that sell for $100 a bottle? So it's, uh, yeah, it's been this interesting sort of up and down ride for the wines of Australia. Yeah, Yellowtail put Australia on the map and, and gave people the opportunity to upgrade mm-hmm. to that $10, $20 Shiraz. But people really Shiraz. didn't. Yeah, and, and no one did. And, and that's the problem yeah. why it's probably never coming back because even yellowtail trends very low right now so yeah it's a shame because they do make some good stuff yeah. but well i think that there's you know there's always opportunity and times do change so i don't know we'll see but with uh with climate change it might just get you know too hot in those areas for uh for producing some fine wine so well, time will tell So the first article that we wanted to speak with you about today is called Nailing the Myth of Minerality. And I actually thought that this was a great article to talk about when I stumbled across it because I had actually gotten a question just like this from my cousin a couple of weeks ago. We were chatting on Facebook and she had posted something about wine descriptive terms and this topic came up. And so this, I thought, really gave a good explanation to the idea of some of these tasting notes that are a little bit more obscure and a little bit harder for us to put our fingers on. And so we understand that it's totally that much harder for the casual wine drinker to put their fingers on. So it's about this idea in some wines that you can sort of smell or taste what we call minerality, but that is sort of a catch-all term for a lot of things that remind us of either what the soil smells like after it rains or flowing water like in a creek or a river or wet stones or salinity from the ocean, sort of a salty brininess. So there are all of these sort of ideas that are really hard to kind of put into descriptive terms, but that we notice in wine and are trying to put it into words to make it something that we can talk about with each other. This is one of those descriptive script is Kim, when we talk wine and you say acid, you say mineral, people who just want to enjoy wine don't really want to hear this stuff. I think it scares them. And do you remember? It is a little weird. It's kind of it's scary. Really, it's like right? we talk about stones and we're like, well, whoever tastes wet stones? I'm like, do you remember the guy, gentleman Vaynerchuk from New Jersey? Oh, yes. So he, he had a family. Gary. Yes. And he was a social media phenomenon. And at one time he was hitting all the talk shows and he would bring jobs of rocks, dirt, <laughs> grass, and he would make the host lick the rocks, taste the grass. And that was how he was explaining minerality, basically, in wine, things to taste in wine. He made people lick a rock to understand <laughs> that. So I always play around thinking about mineral. How do you describe it? Because a lot of times if you're using some sort of wine app or a descriptive thing, it will only give you a choice to say earthy, right? It doesn't break really break down earthy, mineral, rock, grass. It, a lot of times when you say 
say mineral, it covers a lot of things. So that led me to like three questions for you, Kim. The ah. first thing was, would you think minerality is related more to old world European wines than new world wines based on terroir that we always talk about? the regions? In in my experience, yes. But I don't necessarily know if it is because of terroir or because of something else going on. So terroir is this general feeling that place has a taste and that each individual location kind of has its own unique taste and flavor profile because of where it is. And it's not just the soil. So it's the soil, it's the climate, it's how much sunshine they get, how much water they get. But And you wrap the whole thing up into, the, into one package and call it terroir. I will say that for me, I lump minerality more into a category of more savory wines, which I do find are much more those European wines as opposed to more fruity wines, which I tend to find more as American wines. But it, that's not a black and white issue. There are wines with good minerality from all over the world. There are savory wines from the Americas. There are fruity wines from Europe. You know, it's not necessarily one or the other. It's a huge, huge category to me. I mean, it could be, it could be salinity. It can be earthiness. It can be so much. I find myself using more salinity, talking about, oh, this sort of smells sort of briny or it kind of smells like the ocean. But salt, mineral, I mean, you could say, someone could just say mineral. Right. And not Salt is a mineral. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. People in general could say this is a very mineral driven wine Mm -hmm. and not go into that depth of salt. Right. Just, you know, just leave it, leave it at that. And, you know, we do this all the time where maybe you just describe a wine as spicy and you're not necessarily going to describe, oh, these are the types of spices that I'm picking up. Is it licorice? Is it black pepper? Is it clove? Is it cinnamon? No, I just describe it as spicy. And and I think minerally can work for that. I will say that there is all almost always this feeling of sort of leanness to a minerally driven wine. You know, Lean it's meaning acid? Net lean meaning not overwhelming your mouth with big fruity flavors. You know, the difference between lemonade and let's say lemon candy. That there's, not that there's less going on, but that it's not this big, rich, ripe, full of flavor thing going on in your mouth. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, yes and it no. It makes sense to you. It, yes and no. <laughs> so so what was the other question? Let's talk about, uh, would you say mineral wines or minerally driven wines are better food wines than just everyday sitting down drinking wine? Yeah, they're more of a wine with food kind of wine. They can be perfectly pleasant on their own, but I think food brings out different different characteristics in them. And I am drawn to a lot of these types of wines. I always have been. Now I think even more so since I'm working with so many more seafood dishes yeah, in my food. in my day job. Yeah. So oh, I'm thinking about what is going to pair with oysters. And I'm thinking about what is going to pair with shrimp cocktail. And I'm thinking about, you know, what are all these other things that are going to go with all of these seafood preparations that I'm dealing with day in and day out now. And really, these are the styles of wine that are excellent with those kinds of food. So I find myself thinking about this topic a lot lately just because of the, f- the foods that I'm surrounded with all the time. A lot of times 
I'll taste the wine and I'll and I'll think to myself, I could sell this, but I can only sell this if I tell people they must have it with this food. And that's hard, I yes. think, because a lot a retail, that's not how a lot of in a you, restaurant you it works. Looking for right, that. Absolutely. But I think overall selling to American wine drinkers, it's harder to be like, okay, this wine is really only going to show its best if you have it with food. Because a lot of the times that's not how people drink. And personally at home, you know, we drink wine with dinner, but sometimes I just want a glass of wine. And I have wine at home, but I don't have, you know, a gajillion bottles in my wine cellar. So sometimes that's a little bit more difficult because it's almost like, all right, I need, these are the wines that I'm going to have that I know are going to go great with a meal. But then these are the wines that we keep on hand if we just want a glass of wine. So there, you know, there can be those, those differences there too, which makes this style of wine a little bit harder. You'd be shocked at the number of times I will taste the wine and say that to the salesperson that this is a better restaurant wine than, and they agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why, you know, why you bring it into retail is always a mystery. People but. still got to eat, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, the other question I have for you, and I ask this all the time of you, have you ever had anyone ask you outside the restaurant setting, Kim, recommend to me a great wine with minerality, a great wine that tastes volcanic, a great wine that tastes like dirt, right? <laughs> um, I do have a couple of friends who particularly like that flavor profile. So yes, I do get those requests from them specifically. Wow. But because like that's because we're talking they're wine. Foodies? Are they foodies? Yeah, though? yeah, yeah. So that makes they're sense. they're foodies and they're Italians. So yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm glad it you kind of all goes the together. Italian thing because to me Italian wines can be very earthy. Yes, right, it's very mineral, and that's one of the things I hear a lot. I'm a big aroma guy, so if I open up a wine, I want that nice aroma, the nice fruity flavor. If there's some mineral horsiness going on or something, <laughs> then it's not a very uh, is that appealing. A, is thing. that a turnoff for you? You yeah. don't like this well, I, would smelly, you consider that manure mineral? I mean, no, I I don't. I wouldn't. I kind of lump that in the category of funky. <laughs> so yeah, so, but like there's no category, category for that. Um, it's dirt. It's no, in the dirt. I think that could be an animal-y category. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you can like make up your own aroma wheel. And yeah, I should. Maybe, we, we should. We should do that. That would be a whole lot of fun. Be, mineral doesn't do it, but horsey, horsey. manure. See, I think that those are there. two different things. One, one of the interesting things that was brought up in this article that your comment about Italy reminded me of was that, you know, sometimes we talk about these wines as reflections, not only of the place that they come from, but of the particular soils that they're grown in. And just to be clear, you know, this is not that the plant itself is putting these mineral elements physically into the wine. Like you can't test up one of these wines and say, oh, this has a higher calcium content than blah, 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 blah. And it's different. Uh, I, we, they don't really know where this flavor comes from. Um, is it elemental? Is it something having to do with water? Uh, we don't really know. But what I have found is that oftentimes wines with this minerally element are grown on volcanic soil. And that is one of those things that you get a lot in Italy, because there are a lot of places that are wine growing regions, like around Mount Etna, like around Mount Vesuvius, that have all this volcanic soil and we often find this minerally element this volcanic element in those wines where the grapes are grown on the slopes of volcanoes so i think for me personally that's that's pretty fascinating yeah well they're unique if you, and if you open a bottle right away you'll be like wow something you might think it's bad or off mm-hmm. but uh that's the quality and that's the good thing about the world of wine kim right we, there's all sorts of things going that's on right. and usually when you taste those wines that blows off right it doesn't really taste as much as a 
it smells. It's more to me. of an aroma. Sometimes yeah. it does. Yeah. But a good part of the time, it, it's not on the taste. So if this is interesting to you and you want to taste a little bit about what the heck we're talking about here with minerality, I would suggest that you find yourself a bottle of Muscadet, which is from Western France in the Loire Valley. That is a white wine that is very light and lean and crisp. Again, great with oysters. That is a very mineral driven white wine. And anything from Campania in the sort of south central part of Italy. That's where Pompeii and Vesuvius are. And there are a lot of wonderful reds and whites from this part of the country that that show this this minerally character. Um, Same for the reds from Sicily. So there are all these things out there that you can search for and have a taste and let us know. Yeah, try them with food without, especially with seafood, because that's really what they're meant to go with. And uh, hopefully you can taste a little bit about uh, what we are talking about with minerality. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to find out more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We'd love to hear your questions or comments. Our next article, Kim, is from spitbucket.net, and it's about Instagram and why these Instagram feeds from wine are horrible. They didn't use that word. They, they used another word. But in another article about how they can do better with Instagram, and I know we talked in the past about Instagram. And the first thing I want to ask you, Kim, is do you follow many wineries, Instagram's accounts? And what do you look for when you follow them? So I do have a few in my Instagram feed, but I am completely on board with what the author is saying here. I'm very not interested in a lot of what is posted posted on Instagram because there are so many wine brand and winery Instagram feeds that are a bottle and a glass and a bottle and a glass and a bottle and a glass. And when that's what's all in your Instagram feed, it is so boring. Like it's not telling me anything. It's not getting me interested. It's just full of bottle shots in pretty places with sunsets and the beach and, you know, nothing. There's no there's no content there. You know, there's there's nothing interesting. And that was exactly at the heart of what this blog post was about, is that wineries that have Instagram feeds that are all just bottle shots aren't doing anything. A lot of what was talked about here was about social media marketing and the purpose of social media marketing, what you're trying to get across with your marketing, especially if you're spending a lot of money on it. Yes, it's to drive business and to hopefully at the end of the day, get sales of your brand, but that especially for marketing that is targeted to millennials, it's not meant to be advertising because apparently millennials hate being sold to and hate ads and that it's not for the purpose of we're going to do this one post so that we'll sell a whole bunch of bottles, but that you get this involvement and sort of this emotional attachment from your followers who then have this sort of understanding of what your brand is, what you are, what you're doing, and then hopefully we'll go out and purchase your product. So I guess I'm, I'm kind of on the same page with you, Kim. And we both have Instagram accounts. If our listeners don't know Instagram is basically just a picture based app. You take a picture, you you mention something about it. It's hard in so-
social media. We both have businesses that use it to find out what people like. It's timing. It's It has to be something trending. And I agree with you. I don't want to follow a winery, number one, that never posts anything. Why have an Instagram account if, you, if you're not going to keep it updated? You know, put something on there. Some of us are guilty of that on a daily basis. No. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing, like you said, Kim, I don't want to see a selfie of the winemaker every five seconds, whatever personal stuff he's doing. It's just me. You don't want to see his you dog? Know, I don't want you to see me. Here I am. I'm in a... Vi- I don't care. I want to know about your product. What What can I learn about your product? I'd rather you show me a picture of the dirt in your vineyard. What I do love about the wineries, what they do is like, especially this time of year, when it's close to harvest, they're showing you the development of the grapes, you know, geeky stuff like that. I like. I want to see what's going on there because I'm not there. I'm never going to go there, especially these exclusive foreign places. I want to see what you what you look like, what the place looks like. I don't care about, you know, I'm, I don't want to say it. I'm not a dog person, but I don't want to see the dog. <laughs> you don't I don't want to see, see your cat. I want to see what's the product, what's behind the product. One of the, I thought, very interesting sort of pieces of advice that she gave in this article was about using Instagram in an intelligent way to continue to tell your story from what you have either on your website or on your bottle. So say you have a wine that uses a certain t- uh, style of fermentation, whether it's carbonic maceration or something where they're talking about punching down the cap on the wine numerous times. We we have all of these terms that we sort of bandy about and we know what we're talking about and we know what all of that means. But the person who is buying the wine and drinking the wine might not know what all that stuff is talking about. So use your Instagram to show it. You know, don't just say this is carbonic maceration. Show a picture of what carbonic maceration actually looks like you know show the bubbles show how purple the wine is show people getting their hands dirty use it for the visual representation that it's really meant to be so that it's part of your storytelling and it's not the only part of your storytelling and that's it's very rare and i think that's why they're so negative about the winers how they're using it so kim what is your theory or your mentality for your instagram account is it i mean your business is education so you're focusing on educational things What's your like focus of Instagram? Um, I like to show a lot of what I'm actually doing. So showing people, hey, this is what one of my classes looks like, or these are the styles of wines that I like to work with. Um, if I'm doing something interesting visually, like there was a tasting I did a couple of years ago where I had wine glasses that I filled with fruit and spice and all sorts of stuff that I smelled in the wine. So maybe for the Chardonnay, I might have had lemon peel, and some melon balls and I don't know, like butter or cream or something. And so I thought that that was something very interesting to visually represent the wine. So I, I threw that up on my Instagram account. And that's those, those sorts of things. I mean, that's your brand. That's right. your that's your thing. Right. So it makes sense. Like I show a lot of the locations where I do my tastings. I'm always very proud of my cheese platters. So I always show like the food that I bring to my tasting. So th- those sorts of things. It's tough. You, you don't know what's being seen or what people want to see. And I think for me, there's so many marketing is hard marketing in general is hard there's so many different ways there's so many different social media things I think for me I try to put different things on different social medias and you have different audiences that you're trying to appeal to too because you're not just wine so you're a store that you know you you have your beer drinkers you have your wine drinkers you have your spirits drinkers and and a lot of times honestly what aggravates me about this the Instagram stuff is sometimes you just put things you think it's just a joke it's just humor for the industry people love 
nothing. And then you want yeah. something. You put something. You do serious. put a lot of jokes up. Yeah, but then you put something serious. You hope people like it, and there's no interest. But they're so. still seeing it. You so can, because yeah. you're getting the well, interest for the funny things, you don't know. So one of the things Kim they mentioned in the article, getting back to what's not liked about Instagram, they mentioned. I never knew the definition of it. It was called picture puzzles. Yes. Do you know these? I do. When you you look at someone's Instagram and it, they're the, infuriating. Three or four tiles across. It's three across, three down. So it's nine total. So I think. the whole three across instead of one picture is a series of pictures that makes one picture. Right. And that's their whole page. What is that? I have what, no if, idea. That's of- what what the point of that is it's great graphics it's probably hard to do because i could never figure it out but what is that what is that giving you i am the wrong person to ask we should have a marketing professional on here and ask them what the what is the what is the point of that like what is that trying to do i think is is the big question and i know she talked a lot in this about brand awareness and that one of the reasons why a business or a winery might want to only populate their instagram feeds with pictures of their labels is that they're trying to beat you over the head with this is what our brand looks like so that when you are in the market you see it and you recognize it and then you're like oh I I, I recognize that I'm I'm therefore going to buy it but I think it's a little harder as she says here with sort of smaller brands we're not this is not McDonald's or Starbucks you know it's not that there's all of this access to these bigger brands and that it's sort of always top of mind but for a smaller brand that does isn't necessarily it isn't necessarily in every shop or isn't to- totally top of mind for people i think ha- seeing what their brand is and what their label looks like a few times is is one thing but incorporating it into other things as well because when it's only just what's the bottle shot look like i feel like it gets yeah, it's, it's it gets boring and then you just don't even see it anymore because it's like oh it's just that label again but to build the brand awareness first on instagram people have to follow your account unless you're doing something with, with right. hashtags unless, unless, or unless you're they you know, find doing you. a paid ad or something so to, to me also kim this is about you're saying building a brand but it's to me it's a relationship that you're going to follow up to promote your brand and what i see a lot is i'll see a picture of a product and i'll comment for the store saying we love this product we support your product and they don't reply Mm-hmm. So why do you have an Instagram account promoting your product, people comment about your product, and you don't reply? So that to me is a major thing why I think like this author saying it's horrible because if you're going to do it, interact, show some brand awareness that you're accepting people seeing it. Right. And followers want to be engaged. They want to be interacting with the brand and or you know, with the winery or, or whatnot. And, and you know and, and you're right, you know, when you when you make the effort to reach out to them. Them, you want to hear back from them too and that just increases that that kind of one-on-one feeling and it, it tells me i don't know if you get this too kim but it tells me that they're not doing this marketing themselves they don't have the time to do it they're letting someone else do it and they're not doing a good job at doing it because they're not following up well i, with I, the I think if you have someone good doing your marketing then they are going to follow up right yeah so no reply to me means someone's not doing their job right, right? So it's not necessarily not the winery's their, fault yeah. i mean it's someone's not doing their job marketing is not an 
easy thing to do. So I feel like it's one of those aspects of a business that if you can hand that off to someone whose job it is to do marketing and they're good at it and they are the professional, you know, pass it off to them. Get that thing off of your plate so that you can concentrate on those things that you are good at. But that person needs to be doing it correctly. So if they're, if you know, you as a, a store owner are making a comment on a, a winery's website saying, yeah, we carry your brand, um, that would be surprising to me that they wouldn't respond with at least a, hey, you know, thank you. Maybe we'll come see you when we're in the market. Yeah. And you'll, you'll like this, Kim, that one of our biggest people we follow, Wine Folly, every time I comment on this stuff. They comment back. No matter what, I could put a grape, a glass, and they comment right back. They something. are, they are excellent about their, yeah. about their response. Yes, they really so are. I, I, that ha- that's happened to me on Facebook too when I've made comments on their page and I get a reply. And that's what keeps people coming back to, to your account. So I, I think mean, that's one of the reasons why they are so successful too, is that they are inc- incredibly engaged with their followers. So do you use Instagram a lot? Not really. No. No, I'm, I'm more of a, of a Facebook person. I do, ch- I do check my Instagram. Um, I think when you look at the social media things for, for the wine world, Instagram is probably lower than a lot of the other social Because I don't really media. feel like a lot of people have figured out how to do it correctly, you know, how yeah. to do it well, which is exactly what this article is trying to tackle, is that there's very few and far between places that have that are doing it right. And there's just a lot of noise, I think, when, I mean, most of what is in my Instagram feed is, just is wine related. So, you know, I, I mean, I follow some food people too, but it, it's mostly wine and beverage. And a lot of it is just those those kind of boring bottle, yeah, bottle feeds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to make it fun, right? So, I mean. And interesting. And I don't think and- it's totally horrible. I think it's a very useful tool for the wine world. And like I said earlier, what I love about it is it takes me to these places that I, mm-hmm. I'll never go. And there's some beautiful pictures of, of things in the wine world, yep. like you said, soils or whatever. And especially depending on who the demographic is that the winery is trying to get in front of. Different social media platforms are used by different demographic groups. So something like Facebook is f- more for people who are a little bit older as opposed to people who are in their 20s or maybe early 30s are going to be on a different kind of platform. So Yeah, so we don't have a wonderful world of wine Instagram page, but we have our own Instagram. So let us know what you think. That's right. Check us out. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. We've enjoyed talking wine with you. If you'd like to find out our past episodes, we are on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Wine, wine.